Okay, this morning I'd like you to turn um, in your Bibles if you have your Bibles with you. Otherwise, um, if you choose to uh, uh, read scripture passages from your device, whatever the case is, we have ready access to the scriptures, which is a good thing. We continue our series on evangelism this morning, and we find ourselves back in Acts chapter 17. If you were here last week, you know that we dealt with the first part of this passage. And what we're gonna do is we are going to pick up on this passage at verse uh, 16. You remember that last week we considered the Apostle Paul as he is bringing the gospel to bear um, in the Mediterranean world at that time. And as was his custom, as we're gonna see also this morning, one of the first things he would do is he would go into the Jewish synagogue, a place of worship, in order to speak to them about Jesus. And we looked at that last week, and we looked at particularly his approach in that. Now he's in a very different context. He goes from the cities of Thessalonica to Berea, and now 300 miles away to an intellectual center and an academic center uh, known as um, Athens. And we're gonna pick up now where we left off last week. Let's consider now how Paul brings the gospel to bear in this city, verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in a synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way towards him and find him, Yet he's actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and the imagina imagination of man. The times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. 
Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were also Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So that's where the section of Paul's evangelistic activity in Athens ends. You'll see in chapter 18 that Paul goes on to the city of Corinth, a center of commerce, but a lot of immorality. And actually what we're going to do is we're going to find ourselves in Acts chapter 18 next week as we look at the kind of confidence we can have in promoting the gospel in the world. And then after that, there will be one final sermon, the culmination of all our evangelistic activity, which is around the throne of God, the converted of people, every tribe, nation, and tongue. So it's a little bit of a... uh, a lead on what's going to be happening next few weeks. All right, so we're in Acts chapter 17, and for the sake of time, um, I want to get into this. We, we have covered a, a number of areas in this uh, series. We've looked at just what evangelism is from the ministry of Jesus. We have looked at various challenges that we face in evangelism from Romans chapter 1. We looked at uh, three component parts, very important parts of speaking and acting and praying in the evangelistic Uh, enterprise that God has has given us from, I believe it was Colossians chapter 4. And then last week, we considered the approach of the Apostle Paul in a very unique place, the Jewish synagogue, and now um, we find ourselves in Athens, where Paul has a very different audience, therefore um, a different approach. You remember last week that I noted that the Bible does not provide a a one-size-fits-all approach to evangelism. It doesn't provide us just one way of doing it in each and every context. Every context is different. Therefore, the methods that we use and the approach to evangelism is all different. We certainly see a case in point here. And to, to say at the outset, that Paul finds himself in a very interesting uh, place. You, you heard me say the Aeropagus. You're like, what, what in the world is that? Well, that was a place where philosophers would hang out, where they would talk about things, worldview matters, religion, spiritual matters, these kinds of things. It was a place of intellectuals. It was a place of uh, academics. And when, when we read our passage, it's kind of interesting that uh, in verse 16 and following, when you look at the beginning of the passage, the Apostle Paul does in Athens what he did in Thessalonica and Berea. He starts off in the synagogue. That was his, kind of his usual pattern. Because as we saw last week, he had a number of connections with the Jews of the synagogue. And um, I won't get into all those connections now. We talked about them last week. So when he comes to Athens, he goes into the synagogue. And then you notice... This is in verse 17, that when he was done with that, he went into the marketplace to speak about Jesus to anybody who would listen. And finally, he ended up in the Areopagus, the place of intellectuals, the place of philosophers. And he was invited by two groups of philosophers that he met in the marketplace, who were called Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. So if I can put it in kind of today's language, if you can kind of imagine putting yourselves in the shoes of the Apostle Paul, it's like... You, first of all, going into a place of community, a place of worship, like a place like this. And then after speaking about Jesus and reasoning and dialoguing about Jesus, you would decide to go elsewhere. And where would you go? You'd go to the marketplace. So it means you'd probably go down about a mile down the road here on, on 20th Street 
until you get to Trader Joe's and you get to Fry's and you get to Whole Foods and LA Fitness and all the restaurants in that area and you start sharing uh, Jesus with people there. Okay, very different context than the synagogue. And then after spending time in the marketplace, right, then you can decide, I'm gonna go to the ASU campus, the largest university in all of the US, has a number of campuses, and you go to the main campus, and there you go, and there you're gonna speak about Jesus there. And this is what the Apostle Paul did. Went from the synagogue to the marketplace, and finally in God's providence, he ends up at the Areopagus. And as I said, he speaks to a number of philosophers there, primarily two groups of philosophers. And they are what are called Epicureans and Stoics. And uh, we read about verse 18, says some of the Epicurean Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, that is in the marketplace. They're wondering, they're kind of mocking him, but they're wondering also, he, 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 see, he is saying things that we haven't heard before. He's talking about Jesus, whoever this Jesus is, and he's talking about a resurrection, which, you know, arising from the dead, which if we look at world history, we can't look at world history and say, hey, you know, there was a person who actually rose from the dead and he hung out with humanity for a time. And, you know, this is, this is all new to us. We want to hear more about this. So they invite him to the area pocket. So Paul addresses them. Now, with the, I mean, who are the Epicureans? Well, the, in short, the Epicureans were those who believed in the existence of gods, but gods who were largely detached from the world. And because they were detached from the world, well, then the world did not run according to the orchestration of the gods, but the world was based upon random events that simply occurred, what we would call chance today. So this was, this was this is the ones who Paul was talking about, and and he was, he was dealing with individual, Epicureans were known for living life for the pleasures that we experience now because we live in a random universe. So ultimately the lives that we live have no ultimate design or meaning or purpose. So they would say things like, let's eat, drink and be merry. Why not? For tomorrow we die. Let's live for the here and now. I mean, a lot of people like that today. There'd be a lot of people, even, even on the university, ASU University campus, a lot of young college students I had to drive through there the other day, um, and I'm just observing, I see all these young students with their backpacks and so on, and there's the busy ASU campus, and there are a lot of Epicureans on the campus, and in the university campuses today, you know, and they probably don't know, know nothing about the Epicureans, probably couldn't care less, but when it comes to their worldview, they're very Epicurean by nature, okay? And Paul brings the gospel to them. But there's one other group here briefly, and that's the Stoics. And the Stoics are very different than the Epicureans. The Stoics believe in a, in a worldwide spirit that fixed the destinies of everyone. So you live your life, and you and I then are controlled by what we would call this destiny, this fate. And no matter what you do, it's fate, it's gonna happen, um, for those of us who are on in years, it used to be this song by Doris Day, K. Seurat, Seurat, whatever will be, will be. That's a song about fate. So when you talk to people who don't really understand the gospel, oftentimes you will find that if you really dig into their worldview, they're resting either in the arena of chance or the arena of faith, uh, of fate. And the gospel of faith in Jesus 
is very different from that, and the Apostle Paul is going to demonstrate that, uh, as I hope to demonstrate um, in just a moment. So, Apostle Paul finds himself in the area of Pagus. And what I want to say before I get into the substance of what he brings to bear among the Athenian philosophers is that, that the situation for him in the Areopagus is very different again in a synagogue in, in this way. First of all, the audience is very different. He's among pagan intellectuals. He's not with Jewish worshipers in the synagogue. So his audience is different. His geographical location is, is different. The timing is different. His starting point, point of contact with them, as I hope to demonstrate, with the Athenian philosophers is different. And because his context and his starting point is different, the method that he employs in speaking about Jesus is different, and the conclusions are different. It's all different. So this is why I've said at the beginning of, of this whole series on evangelism, a lot of times people want to know, especially when it comes to evangelism, what do I do? What do I say? I mean, what do I, where, do I, where do I begin? What's the substance of what I should say? And I have to say, you know, the best approach to take in this is not to try to find this one-size-fits-all formula, but simply to examine the ministry of Jesus. Examine the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Dig into their examples, and you begin to learn something. And that's what we see here. So what does the Apostle Paul say to the Athenians? Now, I want to uh, draw your attention to uh, verse 22 through 31. I'm not going to handle this in an expository verse-by-verse -verse way. There is so much material here. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a condensed version of this. And if you want to follow along in the Scripture begin verse 22, that's fine. So here's the condensed version. The Apostle Paul comes before these philosophers at the Areopagus, and it comes time for him to address them. He says, men of Athens, I've had an opportunity to kind of do what I'm doing up here now. I've had a chance to tour your city, look around. And as I toured the city, um, I perceive something. I see that the city is really religious. And I see also that you are also very religious. And the reason why I say that there is a certain type of spirituality and religion here is because I see with my eyes a number of images. And I see um, some altars, places of worship toward these various deities that stand behind these images. And I, as, as I'm observing, I see that there is one altar. It's very intriguing to me. It says, to the unknown God. That's the inscription that I saw on the altar, to the unknown God. And I want to ask you, do you really believe that God is truly unknown? Because, because you're religious, you believe in an assortment, a plurality of gods here. So you, many of you believe in the existence of God, and yet there's also this altar to the unknown God. And I'm wondering, what do you actually know about your gods, and how can you substantiate that? So you see what the Apostle Paul is, I can step away from this presentation for just a moment, you see what the Apostle Paul is doing. What, what is his starting point with the men of Athens? And you find this with many people today who are unfamiliar with the Bible. The starting point is the fact 
that they are, and we saw this in Romans chapter 1, they are religious by nature. Remember those, those two uh, Latin words I use in connection with Romans chapter 1, the sensus divinitatis and the semen religionis, that is the seed of religion and the sense of divinity or sense of deity God has sown in every human heart. They can't escape it. Therefore, all of life is religion. You can't get away from the fact that we're religious by nature. Paul begins with that, not with the Bible, not with the Old Testament and Jewish synagogue, but with the sense of religion. So he draws upon that. That's his starting point. So he says, you have this altar to an unknown God. I'm here right now. You want me to talk to you? I'm here right now to explain who this unknown God, this unknown God is. Listen, God is real. God is all-powerful. And God is all-personal. And God has made all things. And not only has he made all things, but he orchestrates all things in this world. He governs all things. So Paul begins with this point of contact, which is religion, and then he talks to them about a fundamental distinction, which we embrace here, which is a distinction between creator and creature. The creator is above the creature, but the creator is not separated from the creature, like the Epicureans believe. But God is the creator, and as a creator, he has made all things, and his hands are in all things, and he orchestrates all things. So the apostle Paul is basically saying to the Epicureans, you know what, you believe in a form of chance, and you Stoics believe in faith. The Christian faith, the gospel teaches us that God is real, God is all-powerful, God is involved in all things, and God has created us and revealed himself to us so that we may know him, we may pursue him. We may seek to find him. And once we find him, we may have fellowship. We may have communion with him, intimate communion with him. The question is, how do we enter into communion with God? How do we enter into this fellowship with him? How do we get to know him? And how do we get to have fellowship with him? And, and, and the Apostle Paul says, The answer to that question lies in, and this is at the very central, this is the central message of evangelism, it lies in Jesus. The eternal God, the eternal Son of God, has actually come down to this earth and he has revealed himself and he has displayed himself in human form, with a human nature, so that you can see him and touch him and grasp him and embrace him and follow him, which is very different from your religion. Now, some people will seek to find God and have fellowship with God in different ways. This is what we call different forms of spirituality or religion. But all of them eventually fall flat because there's a lack of intimacy with this God that can only come through this person and work of Jesus Christ. And the problem with these ultimate forms of spirituality is that they're forms of deceit that are actually rooted in what we call a fallen nature or a sinful nature. And God calls us to deal with that sin. How do we deal with that sin? That sinful nature and those sinful acts that take place in our lives. We're called to deal with it, admit it, repent of it, that is turn away from it, and turn to the one whom God has revealed, the one that we should embrace, not only in repentance but also faith. We're called to entrust ourselves to him. And here's the reason why we must entrust ourselves to Jesus. Because, the Apostle Paul says, judgment is coming. And we're going to have to give an account of our lives to God, what we have done with Jesus. If we have 
done business with him or not. And God has guaranteed this Jesus as the final judge in the end. He's guaranteed that Jesus is the one who will come back and he will be the judge of the living and the dead. And he has guaranteed this by actually raising him from the dead. In short, that's, I didn't cover everything here. In short, that is his presentation. It's basically what he says. Now, do notice this, as I noted before. His, his presentation here, as he gives us this kind of outline that we can learn from. This, this presentation, as I said again, is very different from the synagogue. But there is one thing that remains the same. And that is Jesus. That's the resurrection. Very quickly, let me demonstrate that. Chapter 17, if you have your Bibles uh, open, if you can look at this, take a look at verse 2. Chapter 17, verse 2. We go back to last week. Paul went in the synagogue, as was his custom, and on three Sabbaths day, he reasoned with them, notice, from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, now what does he say? This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. But he speaks about not only the suffering and the death of Christ, but Jesus' resurrection from the dead. That's in the synagogue. Now, no doubt he does this same thing in Berea. That's chapter 10, or um, excuse me, verse 10 and following. Now, notice he goes into the synagogue in verse 16. And I want to begin at verse 16. Take a look at ver through verse 18. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, that's, Tim uh, that's uh, Timothy and Silas, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. And so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching what? Jesus and the resurrection. So he speaks about Jesus and the resurrection in the synagogue, then in the marketplace, and then look at the Areopagus. Two verses, verse 30 and 31. The times of ignorance God has overlooked, he says to the philosophers, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. You can't do business in evangelism. And you can't be faithful with others with the gospel unless you focus on Jesus, his suffering, his death, and his resurrection. I can tell you by experience, when you talk with people outside the faith, you can, you can take all kinds of detours and be derailed in your conversations. Stick to Jesus. Stick to Jesus. And particularly his resurrection. Now, one quick thing I want to draw your attention before we very quickly look at the response, and that is this. You might wonder, you know, when Apostle Paul speaks about Jesus, there's all kinds of things he could say about Jesus. But he focuses on Jesus and the resurrection. Why is the resurrection so important? And this is a theological matter. Why is the resurrection so important? And my answer is threefold, and part of it is actually drawn from one of the confessional documents of our church called the Heidelberg Catechism. Okay, this is why the, the catechetical instruction is important, because we deal with with various doctrines of our faith, which also inform 
how we speak to others about the gospel. Why is the resurrection so important? Number one, if, the re if Jesus never rose from the dead, think about that. If Jesus never rose from the dead, he'd be a liar. Do you really want to serve a liar? He'd be a liar because Jesus himself said to his disciples that the Son of Man must suffer and die and on the third day rise from the dead. He's very clear. If Jesus never rose from the dead, in light of this first point, the disciples would also be liars, and the apostles would be liars, and the apostle Paul would be a blatant, bald-faced liar, because they all claim that he was raised from the dead. Okay? So it has to do with the integrity of the gospel. Secondly, if Jesus never rose from the dead, you and I would still be in our sins. Because a dead savior can't save anybody. And one of the, the beautiful truths about the resurrection and rising from the dead, Jesus is proving that he indeed is a living savior. And he has purchased the redemption and the forgiveness of his people by what he's done on the cross. And then finally this, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, he would have no power to raise anyone from the dead, either spiritually in this life, nor physically at the end of time. If he has no power to rise from the dead, then he has no power to give life to others, spiritual life and physical life. And so often as a pastor, when I look with people, and, I, and, 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 and whether it be members of the church or those outside of the church, but they start to grapple with the gospel, and I see these changes start to take place. The reason why those changes take place is there's not just a shift in their psychology or their emotional frame of mind. It's because the power of the resurrected Christ through the Holy Spirit is changing them. And hopefully it's changing all of us over time. And that's a beautiful thing to witness. So, so really, the point is, more can be said, the point is the whole of the gospel, the whole of the Christian faith, rests in Jesus and his resurrection. So that's what Paul brings forward. And then what do we see? We see the response very quickly. Verse 32 through 34. Now, when they heard, here the philosophers, when they heard the resurrection, they heard Paul's gospel presentation. Notice some of them mocked. Others said, we will hear you again about this. And finally, verse 34, but some men joined him and believed. And then the gospel writer Luke, who writes this, notes them by name. Among them were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So what's the response to the gospel that we still see today? Yes? No? Maybe. Right? Some believe. Um, and some mock. Got to be prepared for that. And... Some say, maybe. In other words, kind of not now necessarily. Let me chew on this for a while. And it's that, that last one that you oftentimes find. You know, um, even an indifference doesn't mean that people are not thinking. So don't give up. Don't give up. And what I found in this church, especially with people who are relatively new, uh, a lot of them just need some time to chew on things. In the meantime, you just keep inviting them to worship and love on them and encourage them in the gospel. That's usually how the gospel works in people's lives. So, with that having been said, you say, okay, what's, 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 the, what's the basic takeaway? And for the sake of time, I want to leave you just two things. Okay, a more practical note. Um, many of you may be wondering, okay, what do I, uh, if I find myself in a similar situation, whether it be one-on-one -on -one or before a group of individuals, what, what am I going to say? 
And again, when we look at a passage like this, it doesn't give a tidy formula for us, but it gives a tidy outline. What is that outline? It's an outline that, I don't know if you've used this, but I've used this on a number of occasions. It's the outline of the story of the Bible from beginning to end. Creator-creature distinction in connection with the creative activity of God. So creation, fall, the fall into sin, the redemption that is needed, the deliverance that is needed through Jesus Christ, and what we call the consummation, the end of all things, and the ushering in of the judgment and the new creation. Those four basic things, creation, fall, redemption, consummation. Let me give you one example of that quickly. Some years ago, I was asked to speak at a youth convention um, about uh, what's called gender dysphoria and uh, same-sex attraction and lifestyle. So I spoke on that, and at the very end of the presentation, I won't get into all of what I said, but at the end of the presentation, um, a number of the, of, of the younger individuals who were there um, were wondering, well, what, how do I speak the gospel into people's lives? People may struggle on a, um, a sexual level or in terms of sexual identity. What do, I, what do I say to them? And this is what I said to them. And it was based on this creation, fall, redemption, consummation outline. And I even worked on a, a board, wrote it down, creation, fall, redemption, consummation. And I said, this is way... This is one way of handling it. A lot of times when we look at people who are struggling in this area, we may find that we are not struggling in that area. And I said it's very easy then to look at the barrier that's set up there, the dissimilarities, rather than the similarities that we have. I said if they're struggling in that area, focus on not dissimilarities, but the similarities, things that we have in common. And what do we have in common with people who struggle with that sin? We have these things in common. We have been created by God, both of us. We have been made in his image. But that image is distorted. And that image is distorted in you. And the image is distorted in me. And the image, thirdly, is distorted because of what we call the reality of sin in our lives. And sin is all a part of our nature. It's all a part of our condition. And a lot of things that we do in this life stem from that fallen sinful nature. And that moves us in all kinds of areas that are not pleasant and areas that enslave us. You struggle in the area of maybe sexual identity. I maybe don't struggle with that area, but I struggle with other things. And so in the sense, we're together in that. So we're created beings. We have image bearers of God. It's distorted because of sin. But here's the thing. We both also are given the opportunity of the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And what is the good news of Jesus? To face the sin that we are experiencing in our lives by repenting of our sin and believing in Jesus Christ and together finding forgiveness. And when we find forgiveness in Christ and we give our lives to Christ through repentance and faith, he also gives us the power to overcome sin in our lives, however it manifests itself. And that's an important thing. Because, let me tell you, Jesus is coming back again. And one day, you and I will be facing the judgment throne of Christ. And we'll have to give an account of our lives, whether we are found in Christ or not. And if we are, here's the final thing we have in common. It's called the new creation. Where sin will be no more. And all of your struggles, and all of my struggles, will be no more. For Christ will be all in all, and sin will be vanquished. Do you see how I covered creation, fall, 
redemption, consummation. When you speak to others about the gospel, remember those four basic things. And then finally, very briefly with this, we can take a look at a passage and just kind of in a series on evangelism say, well, good, I, I have an outline here. It's very instructive. But the fact of the matter is, Luke put this and recorded this in the gospel so that we ourselves might hear the gospel and so that we might respond to it. And how are we called to respond? Whether we're part of the worship community or a business person in the marketplace or a student on the university campus, what are we called to do? We're called to do what the Apostle Paul calls us to do and what Jesus teaches us to do, that is to do business with our sin, to manifest itself in different ways, to repent, to believe, and to find freedom in Jesus Christ. That's our call. That's the command of the Lord. And may we together join hands in doing precisely that. For freedom and joy and purpose can only be found in a Savior who is Jesus, who has suffered, who has risen, and has ascended even now, the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. And Lord, we're so grateful that we do find examples in the Bible from our Lord and from the apostles about doing business with the world, bringing the gospel to bear. Lord, you've brought the gospel to bear in many parts of our lives and, and many of us here, and we are so grateful for that. Father, may our gratitude spill over in our desire to declare the excellencies of you who have called us out of darkness and transferred us into your marvelous light. So Father, we bring this to you again. We pray for open doors. Give us mouths to speak, O oh God, and a lifestyle that accords with the gospel that we embrace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.